Thank you, team. You can go ahead and be seated. Oh, man, it's good to be here today. Uh, man, that baptism with Yolanda. Everybody who gets into the baptism tub is excited, but there are very few people who are as exuberant as she was uh, this morning in getting baptized. She was hooping and hollering when she got in the tub because it was warm. She was praising God. And so, uh, yeah, anyways, we, uh, man, we love baptism here. We love to see the story of Jesus changing lives and to share that story uh, with all who will listen. And if you're here today and uh, you're a follower of Jesus, I would just encourage encourage you to get baptized, to enter into the waters, that we see all throughout scripture that we, that once we believe that the first really step of our faith is to proclaim that faith publicly in the waters of baptism, where we get dunked into the water, which is just a symbol of itself to the death that we're experiencing. We're dying to ourselves and we're raising again in the new life that we have in Jesus. And so if you uh, want to uh, be baptized, one of the things that we have, you'll see a couple times today, is our text line uh, at 720 and if you text the word next to that, uh, we will help you walk through that journey of baptism uh, where you'll end up here with a story to tell and uh, it'll be really, really good. And so if you want to be a part of that, that's the way to be a part of that. I want to welcome all of you uh, joining us online here at Thornton. If you're brand new with us, man, I'm so grateful uh, that you're here today. My hope and prayer really is that over this next hour that you would be inspired not just to come back again, but that you would actually be inspired to the hope that we have in Jesus. Jesus, that everything that we do here at Crossroads centers around uh, Jesus and the work of him on the cross and ultimately his resurrection. And I pray that you would see that today. And so if you're new with us, uh, welcome. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Matt Manning and I'm the senior pastor here. And we are in the middle of a series on anger called Why So Angry? Because you probably feel it, the whole world just feels like it's angry all the time, right? Like there is just this sense in the world where unrest is everywhere. Last week I was in uh, Okaboji, Iowa. Anybody ever been to Okaboji? Oh my goodness, one of you, good, yes. So I had never even heard about Okaboji until six months ago. And Okaboji is honest to God, one of the most beautiful places I have ever been. It's got this, it's in Northwest Iowa of all places. And it kind of has this like Estes Park kind of feel if Estes Park was this like lake town. In fact, they call Okaboji like the, the Great Lakes of Iowa. And they are one of only three um, blue water lakes in all the world. I mean, just beautiful blues in the lake. And so we're in this town. And the reason that I was actually there is I was invited uh, to come speak at a Bible conference that's been going on for 88 years there. And there's about like 12 to 1500 people who show up again, like who knew that this was going on. And uh, they found me on the internet through a series that we did in August of last year called Do Justice. Some of you might remember that series where we looked at like the social justice issues of race and poverty, sex and life and said, what does it look like for us as Christians to have a Christian response to that? Well, they found that they said, hey, can you come out and speak about it? And I said, sure. And then they're like, yeah, we don't need you to be like 30 minutes. We need you to be like 90 minutes. I was like, no big deal. I'm a pastor. You give me a mic, I can go on, right? And then they were like, and we'd like you to talk about politics as well. And I was like, oh, so it'll be my last time in Okaboji. So anyways, um, so as they're speaking and they put us up in this little cottage. And so Wednesday morning I was out and I was just kind of doing my uh, morning routine. I was reading, thinking, just praying, just getting ready for the day. And in the cottage beside us, this nine-year-old kid boy walks out and he kind of just steps out in the porch and he just goes, Ugh. 
And he kind of makes eye contact with me and I go, rough night, huh, buddy? And he just kind of growled at me. And I thought, man, like everybody's angry, even the nine-year-old in paradise, right, is like frustrated in his vacation. And then I thank God for the awesome sermon illustration. And so uh, we're, talking about, we're talking about anger. Now, at the beginning of 2021, kind of looking back on 2020, uh, I wrote these words, and I just wanted to, to read them to you today. It says, the truth is, is that you and I have watched people get angrier and angrier over the last five years. That maybe you feel it in yourself. This last year, with the effects of the coronavirus on our society, perhaps a death of a loved one, the loss of a job, the loss of freedom, Maybe the anger bubbles from the racial tension of this summer and fall, from racial injustice to the destruction of our cities. Maybe your anger is poured forth from handling of the elections or the assault on the Capitol. There's so much anger, it's deeply alarming to me. It's been devastating to see the anger devolve us to, the level, uh, to this level as a culture to the point where even the church has descended into a lot of the hatred, the vitriol, and the division that has come to plague our culture. If those words that I wrote in 2021 were true, they're even truer today. That our, our culture continues to devolve deeper into deeper anger, deeper frustration, deeper outrage. And our society, as we look upon it, is just angry. And when you have a culture like this, when you have a society that is so angry, the reality is that culture needs an alternative to itself, not an echo chamber of itself. And so the question that we've been looking at is really the question is that when it comes to our anger is how do we deal with the anger that we feel, the anger that we see in ourselves, and the anger that we see in others? That's the question that the series is attempting to address. And so if you were here last week, we started to answer that question, and Pastor Chris gave just a powerful message. And what we discovered in his message is this, is that when it comes to anger, that anger is actually a gift from God. We don't think about it that way. But when it comes to anger, anger is actually a gift from God. That anger is this emotional compass, it's an emotional compass for us to be able to see the threats and ultimately the injustices of this world. That that's what anger is, that it's this emotional compass to see the threats in this world, to see the injustices of this world, and that ultimately anger is given to us as a gift from God. Now unfortunately, for most of us, that's not how we experience anger, is it? We don't experience it as a gift. And the reason that we don't experience it as a gift is oftentimes because we only experience the negative sides of anger. And yet as we talked through that even last week, we saw that when we open the Bible, the Bible never uh, actually calls anger sin. That you can search throughout all of the Old Testament and into the New Testament and you will never see God call anger a sin. It's an emotion, but it's not a sin. It's not a sin. That anger becomes a problem for us, that anger becomes sinful for us, when, when we become, when it becomes chronic in our lives, when it takes control of our lives in such a way that we only experience the negative outcomes of anger. And unfortunately, that's how many of us experience this emotion. We snap at our kids, don't we? We are passive aggressive with our spouse. We wish ill will on our, on our coworkers. We hold grudges with people in our lives. The truth is, is that every single one of us has issues when it comes to anger. Now, your anger might look different than my anger, like the way that I, that I, that I uh, express this emotion may be different than others, but the reality is that every single one of us has anger issues. And so the question for us is, what do you do? What do you do when you're just so angry all the time? Like, what does it look like to experience healing 
when it, when it comes to this emotion that we experience in our lives and in this point of our lives, experience quite regularly in our lives? Those are the questions that we're going to wrestle with today. And so if you have your Bibles, fortunately for us, um, the Bible actually addresses this issue. That the Bible is not silent on the issue of anger. And so if you have your Bible, Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at just two verses today. We looked at them last week, but it's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. That while we looked at these briefly last week, these are really the go-to verses in all of the Bible when it comes to understanding our anger and ultimately how to find healing in it. Now, as you open up to Ephesians, know that Ephesians is written by the Apostle Paul, right? The great missionary who wrote like most of our New Testament. And we know like the MO of Paul was he would go into a town and he would begin a church. He would start a church. And then once he got the church kind of up and running, he would invest in leaders. And then he would hand that off to a pastor and he would go somewhere else in the world and he would begin to do that again. And then from time to time, what Paul would do is he would write a letter back to the churches that he started. Ephesians, the church in Ephesus, was one of those. And he would write back encouraging them, saying, look, this is what I want you to focus on when it comes to your relationship with God. This is how we're to live. Like it would be letters that he would write back to his churches. That's what the book of Ephesus is. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the church. Now, what makes these verses so powerful in Ephesians chapter 4 is not simply that Paul is writing them, but actually the circumstance in which Paul is writing them. That where Paul's writing from should get us to sit up and to pay attention to what Paul is saying here. Because when Paul's writing this letter, he's doing so from a Roman jail. He's doing so from a Roman prison. That that's where he's, that's what, that's where he's writing this from. That at this point in Paul's life, he has been unjustly treated by people who once had his back. He's being unjustly treated by the political system. The people that he's trying to help, the Christians, are largely ignoring him. And so Paul has all the reason in the world that he's sitting in jail because the people who used to be his friends are no longer his friends, and the friends that he has now aren't doing anything about it. And so he has all the reason in the world to be mad. He has reason to be mad at the political systems. He has reason to be mad at the political leaders. He has reason to be mad at the Jews. He has reason to be mad at the Christians. He has reason to be mad at the Romans. And quite honestly, he has reason to be mad at God. Like his life was just fine before God came in. Like Paul was, you know, famous among the political powers. He was influential. He was a fame that he was well known as a religious leader that when he walked in, people paid attention. Like that was Paul's life. And then one day God literally knocks him off the top of a horse and his whole world, worldly speaking, falls apart. Like his whole life, worldly speaking, begins to fall apart. And because of his faith, that Paul eventually ends up unjustly in prison in Rome. And on his way to that prison, if you could imagine everything that could go wrong, it does go wrong on his way to jail. And so Paul isn't writing this letter. He's not writing these words that we read today from like the Sandals Resort in Nassau in the Bahamas. Like that's not where that's going. Like he's sitting chained to two guards, one in each hand, as he tries to write this letter to the church that he loves. And in the midst of all of this circumstance, here's the words that Paul writes. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander but put away from you along with all malice. Paul says, let's do something here. Everybody in the room, anybody got bitterness? Anybody got bitterness rooting inside of them? Anybody dealing with, with wrath, like you're just raging all the time? 
Anybody so angry that you feel like, you feel like doing this meme here? You got the meme, right? Anybody feel angry like you just wanna do this all the time? You know, you got clamor in your life, which means you just feel like you're on the verge of yelling all the time. Do you have, are you slandering people, like speaking bad about their backs? Malice, do you wish ill will on people? Paul says, let's just do something. Anybody in the room, anybody online, anybody got that going on in their lives? To which we all kind of shake our heads and go, yeah, I feel some of that. I feel some of that in the world that I'm living in today. Paul says, then here's the deal. He goes through this whole gamut. He says, if you're harboring any of this stuff in your life, you need to dredge it all out. That you, need to, that you need to get rid of it. If you got any of this stuff going on in your life, you have to get it out. Because here's what Paul knows that intuitively we know. That the anger in our life, the anger in our life, the wrath, the rage, if it's not dealt with, ultimately ends up in feelings of bitterness. The anger, the rage, the wrath, if it's not dealt with in our lives, that eventually it ends up in feelings of bitterness. And we know, come on, we know this, that when bitterness starts to take root in our, in our lives, that we go to bed and, and this bitterness just fills it up in us and we know it's wrong, that we feel that bitterness and it keeps us up at night and we just you know, replay the situation over and over and over and over again in our, in our minds and we know it's not good for us. I mean, come on, we know that the bitterness that we're harboring in our own hearts, that bitterness is killing our souls and nobody else. That Paul knows this. And he says, you just, you just need to get rid of it. You need to get this out of your life. Well, last Wednesday was a pretty packed day for me. And like I said, I was, I was speaking at this conference. Um, I had a whole bunch of meetings in the afternoon through Zoom that I needed to be a part of. Uh, I had a sermon that I needed to finish up. I had church council that night. Basically from eight in the morning to 10 p.m. at night, um, I was like in work. And so most of that day, my kids and wife were doing something um, you know, on their own. But we had planned at five o'clock that we were gonna get together and do dinner together. And so they swing by, they pick me up, and we go to this restaurant that was just beautiful. I mean, it had like terraced decks and on the decks were tables and all of the tables overlooked the beautiful lake and you know you could see the boats coming in and out you could see the little ducklings swimming like they had live music like it was a really cool environment the one thing that we didn't know is how long it was going to take to serve us and, the, and as the evening went on, right, the, the dinner started with ample, with ample uh, shade everywhere. And by the time we got done two hours later, the sun was like beaming in our faces, right, like just searing my eyeballs. I'm just sweating profusely everywhere. And, you know, the food wasn't worth the two hours that it took to get to us. And as we asked for the check, I'm sitting there waiting, not like two, three, four, five minutes. We're like talking 15, 20 minutes. We're waiting on the check. And in there, like time is starting to slip away and I can start to feel the anxiety and my anger is just growing and growing. Well, it got to the point where I had to like make a decision because I had to get back. We can't pay for the bill yet. Like I don't even know how much it is. And so I look at my wife and I said, hey, I'm gonna give you the keys. You can take you and the kids to go where you need to go, but I gotta get back, I'm gonna hoof it back. And so I started to walk back a mile. And as I'm trumping back a mile, I'm thinking about why I'm angry. Like I'm trying to apply last week's message from Pastor Chris to my life. 
And I'm tromping back and I'm thinking, who am I mad at? Am I mad at my wife for choosing this place, the server, the kitchen, the management, Okaboji? Like, who am I mad at, you know? And I'm just seething as I'm walking. And the reason that I was seething is because that restaurant that somebody had assumed on my time, time that I did not have to get. And so as I'm walking back, I'm just infuriated. Now, the irony is not lost on me. That part of the reason that I was so angry is because of the anxiousness that I had, that I had not yet finished a sermon on anger yet, all right? That's not lost on me. But here's the deal. What this story illustrated is the dilemma of anger that all of us face. We're going to put this on the screen for you. That every time you experience anger, every time you experience anger, there is a sense in which something has been taken from you. That every single time you experience anger is because there is a sense in which something has been taken from you, something that is valuable, something you cherish, something that's significant, that that has been taken from you and that you will never get it back. Remember, anger is the emotion in your life or in your world that signals injustice. That's what anger is. That I'm angry because the restaurant took the time that I did not have. That I'm raging because that guy beside me cut me off and compromised my safety. That I'm upset because my phone broke and now I'm gonna have to spend money that I don't have. I'm so mad at my mom because when she left my dad, she, she took with her the opportunity for me to have a stable family. I feel so much resent because of the guy in my office who spoke ill about me and ruined my reputation and it's taken me an entire yield year to bring it back. That I have so much anger because I just found out that my husband is sleeping with my best friend and in a moment of just a, in, a, in just a few moments, I lost the most two significant people in my life. That this is so important that every time Every time you experience anger is because something has actually been taken from you, something valuable, something significant, something that you cherished, and injustice has incurred in your life. And you read these words in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, and Paul says, just get rid of them, just, just let it go, and you go, Paul, <laughs> I don't want to. Like, I, I don't want to just let it go. What they did was wrong. What they did, they took something from me. I don't want to let it go. I want them to pay. I want vengeance in my life. That's, that's what I want, Paul. And if you're feeling that way today, I want you to know that Paul's words in Romans chapter 12 are for you. In Romans chapter 12, verse 17, Paul writes these words. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. It is possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all, with everyone. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, as we read those verses, did you notice the little word for there? That little word for speaks to and helps us so much when it comes to our understanding of anger and the motivation that we have when it comes to it. 
The reason that we find it so hard to return good for evil, the reason that we find it so difficult not to plan vengeance, not to, not to strike back, that one of the reasons it's so hard is because deep down in our souls there is warranted, justified desire that justice be done. And you clench your fist and you grit your teeth Every time you think about the huge loss caused by someone in your life, whether there's negligence or their malice or their indifference, and your mind just dwells over and over again on what happened because it's not right, that justice has not been done. It's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. That little word for names our motivation. Now, when we read this passage, when we read this passage, the motivation isn't the issue. We don't feel any tension in the, motiv- in the motivation. Like justice, justice has not been done. I, I want to seek vengeance in this. Like we don't feel any tension. Where we feel tension is with the words that follow. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says God. That's where we feel the tension. That he will repay. And the problem for us, the reason that we feel the tension is because if I actually believe this, if I actually give this to God, it doesn't actually feel like justice is being done. It doesn't actually feel like justice is being served. It actually feels like nobody knows what happens, that nobody even really cares what happens. And sometimes even us as believers, even as us as believers have a hard time trusting God. That our tendency is to go, nobody knows, nobody cares, but come on. As believers, we know this, that that's just unbelief talking, that God knows. That God has seen the injustices in your life and in my life, big or small, that God knows, and not only does he know, but he says, the vengeance is mine. Like, I got you. You can trust me. I I got you. I'll, I'll make sure that it's repaid, which honestly speaking, leads us to a whole host of other questions, doesn't it, about this verse? Like we look at this verse and we go, Paul, <laughs> Paul, are you saying that if there's someone in my life that I really wanna get, that I just need to pray that God gets them? Like do I just need to sit back leafily waiting for thunderbolts to fly out of the sky? Like is that what's going on here? To which we would go, probably not. And the reason that we'd say probably not is because in Proverbs 24, verses 17 and 18, Solomon writes these words. He says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Don't rejoice when your enemy falls. And let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Lest the Lord see it and be displeased with who? You. And turn away his anger from him. See, the way this works is that all of us in this room, all of us online, that every single one of us has been wronged in our lives. That nobody here has not been wronged in their life. And for many of us, we have been seriously wronged by people we trusted, by people we loved, and they never apologized for it. They never did anything meaningful or reasonable to make it right. And one of the deep issues that you have in letting go of your anger is the conviction that if you do, justice will not be served. And that is a conviction that you have to your very toes, that justice must be served. And in those moments, we feel, we feel like the fabric of the universe, Spider-Man style, is being torn apart if I treat this person like I treat everyone else. 
And the way that we, that we pull it out is like this, that, that he's just got everybody fooled. Like, like he's just deceiving everybody. That everybody thinks he's a good guy, but he's not. He's a punk. He's a jerk. Like he's, like he's hurt me. He's wronged me. I just can't, I just can't let that go. You can't, you can't let this wrong go. And so we hold on to our anger, don't we? And eventually that anger turns itself into bitterness. And then that bitterness roots itself in us and begins to kill our souls. And if you're living there, there's hope because these verses in Romans are for you. It's for every single one of us who are carrying a legitimate grudge. It's for those of us who have been wronged, significantly and massively wronged by people in our lives. That these verses are for anyone today who says that if I lay this down, it feels like there's no justice. That he or she is, is just getting away with it. There's no vengeance in this world. That this passage in Romans chapter 12 is for you because that feeling, according to Paul, it's wrong. It's unbelief talking that God knows. The Lord says, I got this. I will repay this. And the significance of this is that Paul wrote these words some 2,000 years ago. So that when you walk out of here today, that you can lay it down and know that God's going to pick it up. That you can lay down your anger and your wrath and your clamor and your slander and your malice and your bitterness. And when you lay it down, that you can have confidence that God is going to pick it up that it does not get lost, that God picks it up and, and he says, vengeance is mine, that, that I will repay for this, says the Lord. In other words, God says, you let me take care of it. And when we do, we are taking a massive step of faith, that we are submitting, that we are putting Jesus as the rightful Lord of our lives. Because that is a massive step of faith, to submit him with the hurts that we have in our lives and say, look, God, not me. I'm not repaying it. I'm not bringing vengeance. I'm allowing you to carry this forward. I'm allowing you to pick it up. I lay it down for you to pick it up. I'm trusting that you'll do that. Paul says, look, you got to get rid of your anger. You got to get rid of all that stuff in you. And instead of looking like an angry person in life, he brings us to verse 32 and he says, be like this instead. This is what people who are Jesus followers, this is what they look like. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What Paul is doing here is he's setting up this contrast between an angry person of the world and what it looks like for a person to walk with Jesus. And he says, you want to know the key to healing when it comes to your anger? Do you want to know how to get rid of the anger in your life? Do you want to know how to put all that stuff away? The key to all of that, Paul says, is to forgive. Is to forgive one another. Now, the reality is that everyone in this room, that we've all tried this, haven't we? <laughs> like, this isn't something unique to Christianity. This is, this is like a human nature thing. Like, every faith system has some like level of forgiveness in their system. Like this isn't unique to Christianity, but what is unique, what is unique is the way that the Bible defines forgiveness. That biblically speaking, when it comes to forgiveness, forgiveness is a decision. That forgiveness is a decision. It's a decision that the person who's wronged you, the person who's hurt you, the person who's taken from you does not owe you any more. It's saying, you don't owe me anymore. 
And it's not contingent on your emotion or the situation. That when anger happens, remember, it's because an injustice has happened in your life. That something has actually been taken from you. Something valuable, something significant, something that you cherish. And that person, they really do owe you. That there is a debt that they now owe you. That they are indebted to you. And Paul says that you can allow that debt to drive your anger eventually all the way to bitterness that kills your soul. Or you can choose to forgive and find healing. That forgiveness is making a decision that you don't owe me anymore. That the person that you're angry with, the person who's taken something from you, the person that has hurt you, that they do not owe me anymore. That their debt is canceled. Now the way that verse 32 reads in the Greek is ongoing. That this isn't just like a one-time forgiveness, but Paul says that those of us who follow Jesus, who are, who are living our lives for Jesus, that we are to constantly be forgiving one another. That we are to develop a lifestyle where we are constantly doling out forgiveness to the people in our lives. And what's so important for us to get in all of this is that if we're actually going to experience the healing that forgiveness provides, it means that we actually have to do the hard work to name what's been taken from us. That if we don't know what's been taken, we can never cancel the debt. If we don't do the hard work, the brutal hard work of identifying what has been taken from us, we will never actually experience the healing that Paul thinks and believes that we can have. And as we walk through that, we can't simply minimize its value or its significance to us. And as we're doling out this forgiveness, we cannot wait, we cannot wait for an apology or even restitution. That your forgiveness does not always mean that you will trust that person again in your life. In fact, biblically speaking, when it comes to forgiveness, it does not require that we do trust them again. The Bible teaches that forgiveness is unconditional, but meaningful reconciliation and restoration are conditional. That trust is built on the offender's genuine repentance their humble willingness to accept what they did, to apologize to it, to repent for their actions, to acknowledge the consequences. And it's dependent on your desire to work with that person to restore that relationship. See, all of this is so important for us to understand because you can't decide to forgive until you know what's been taken from you. That you cannot experience healing in your life until you know what's been taken from you. It's what makes forgiveness feel so costly. It's why this first step feels like death. It's what makes it so difficult that we want to cling to our right to be angry, and we often resent being asked to give it all up. I mean, it seems so unfair that my flesh demands that there's, that there's vengeance and there's restitution and that, and that it's paid for. That forgiveness doesn't make any sense. It's not intuitive. It's not natural, which is why that only truly forgiven people have any real motivation to forgive others. That only if you've experienced forgiveness do you have really any motivation to forgive others. See, you you have been invited into a relationship with God. And you had a debt. Oh boy, you had a debt. I had a debt that because of my sin, that I had a debt that I could not pay back. In fact, the payment of that debt was death. Is death. It's death. 
And this is not like some make-believe that we genuinely owe God. And when we acknowledge that Jesus is our Savior and our Lord, that God looks at us with all of his mercy and all of his grace, and he looks at our sin and he looks at us and he says, you know what? I forgive you. You don't owe me anything. That's all been taken care of at the cross. See, this is why forgiveness doesn't make any sense to those who have not been forgiven. It's why we love the song, despite whatever generation you are, we love to sing the song Amazing Grace because it is the anthem of our forgiveness. That God's grace, being the sin of our lives, as dirty and ugly and as harmful and hurtful as we have been towards God, that all of sin, right, that all of our lives is supposed to be this reflection of who God is to the creation so that the creation knows what it looks like to walk with God, and we solely that with our sin. And as we hurt God, he looks upon us. He says, you don't owe me anymore. That was all taken care of at the cross. And then Jesus looks at you and he looks at me and he says, Matt, now I want you to do the same for others as I've done for you. That I want you to decide in your relationships. I want you to decide with the people in your life. I want you to decide with the people that you rub shoulders with, the people who have wronged you, massively wronged you, who have taken things that you valued and were significant and cherished. And I want you to look at them the way that I look at you and say to them, I forgive you. You don't owe me any more. See, if you're not a forgiven person, you'll never understand forgiveness. And not only will forgiveness not make any sense to you, it'll be something that you risk... Uh, that you resist your entire life. That the only thing that makes any sense out of forgiveness is for those of us who have been forgiven. That's why Paul says these verses in Ephesians chapter four. Let me tell you to them again. You got any bitterness, rage, anger, clamor, slander, all types of malice? You need to get rid of that in your life, root it out. Instead, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. In other words, you forgive because Christ forgave you. And when we do, that's when we find the healing that we so desire in our lives. Before we go to communion, will you bow with me in prayer? Father, we um, step into your presence. Lord, knowing that as we bring up subjects like this, particularly around forgiveness and the hurts and the pains that have been that have been taken from us, the things that we value that have been taken from us. God, there is something in us that has a great deal of tension. Lord, where we want to return evil for evil, where we want to strike back, where we want to see vengeance planned and pulled off. And yet, Lord, as we walk through this today, we realize that that's not your plan. It wasn't from the very beginning. And for that, we are extremely grateful that your grace fell upon us and even in our darkest moments as humans, that you made a way. That you made a way and through your grace, you look at us and say, you are forgiven. (laughs) Because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, that you are forgiven, you don't owe me anymore. And so Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to step out and to seek forgiveness in our lives. Lord, that we would dole out forgiveness, that we would make the decision, Lord, that the people who've wronged us and hurt us, that they don't owe us any 
more. And Lord, I pray for those, Lord, online, here in the room, who maybe have not yet experienced your forgiveness. Lord, as they sit there and and think about all of this, that probably none of it makes any sense because they haven't walked in your grace. They don't know your mercy. And so, Lord, I pray that you would whisper to their souls, that you would awaken their hearts and that they would see you and that they would come to know you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. As we go to a time of communion, what I want to do is I just want to set up 30 seconds of quiet for you to have. Like I said, all of us experience anger in our lives, and we just want to give you some quiet space to deal with the anger that maybe you need to dredge out. And so would you do that now? If in all of this, if you haven't experienced the forgiveness of Jesus, we'd invite you into that conversation. We would love to be able to tell you what that looks like. You can simply text our text line with the word Jesus, and we'd love to have that conversation with you. But as we gather together around communion, we're reminded, we're reminded that when God says that the vengeance is his, that he will repay, that that even comes to our sin, that it was our ugliness that caused God's pain. It was us who, were, who was massively wronging God. And yet when God gets ready to pour out his vengeance on the sin of this world, he doesn't do so on us, but he does so on himself by sending his son to the cross to die, where his body was broken and his blood was poured out so that we might receive the forgiveness of our sins and have life everlasting. That's why we celebrate communion every week, to remind ourselves of the goodness of our God. And so as a family together, we partake and we eat. And we take the cup and we celebrate the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus. Look, in a subject like this, we know that maybe a few of you need prayer. And we encourage you to take that step online. You can click the button. In-house, you can make your way over to the to the prayer banner. We'll have people to pray there for you. But what I'm going to invite is, is wherever you're at, online, in-house, we're going to stand and we're going to sing the anthem of our forgiveness together.